I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. Welcome to Pushback Talks. Leilani, we are, we are rolling again. Here we are. And this is the Pushback Talks summer series. Oof. We have an, an inspirational guest, a young European politician from the, the, the Green Party of the Netherlands, Kim van Sparentak. And Leilani, you really wanted Kim to be on. You have to tell me why. Because Kim is a complete inspiration and has brought so much energy and intellect to the issue of housing, homelessness, financialization. And she's a parliamentarian. I mean, it's super important. She is in a position to make change. But she's embraced it with so much enthusiasm and energy. How can you not want Kim on your podcast? And I wish our listeners now could see Kim smiling. Welcome to Pushback Talk, Kim. Thank How can you? you? The, <laughs> nicest, the nicest introduction I've ever had. <laughs> Welcome, that's, welcome. That's, I'm so happy you're here. So you're you're here because you're an inspiration, but also because you have uh, commissioned a report to the European uh, Parliament, which the very amazing title, My Home is an Asset Class. An asset class. It's like, a, it's something on the financial market, my home, which uh, then I made a film about something called The Push, which is then lands in the same conclusion. I, I guess you've seen Push. Yes, yes. Do you recognize this in your own country also? Yes, definitely. And actually all over Europe. Um, so at the beginning of the parliamentary term in 2019, I was um, chosen to be the rapporteur on a housing report, a report on um, the current state of housing in Europe. And, um, you know, officially housing is not a European competence. So officially the European Union being the European Commission cannot make laws about housing. And I think in principle, that's a good thing because uh, people on a local level have a much clearer idea, of course, of what is necessary. Um, so I decided to write a report on all the different aspects where the European Union does have an influence on the housing market. And one of the things that I came to realize that there is a housing crisis all over Europe um, and that we're seeing the same trends all over Europe. And um, interestingly, when while I was um, writing this, this first report, um, I came across your documentary and realized, oh, it's actually not even only Europe. It's happening literally everywhere in the world right now. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to, to see happening um, based on, on the report on housing, where we also called uh, for an end to homelessness in 2030, um, for a stronger uh, fundamental rights perspective in housing, you know, more attention for, for the renovation uh, aspects of housing. We also asked to have a stronger look at financialization and how the European Capital Markets Union and all the financial things in the European Union were actually um, also related to the housing crisis. And it was really hard to, to get my colleagues even recognizing the word financialization in the report. And then we thought, well, if we as a parliament are not going to call for a report on financialization from the European Commission, we'll do it ourselves. And that's in the end, uh, my house is an asset class report. So it's cool. You're, you're going against, because I mean, we also know that the European Union for a long time has been a very neoliberal praising unit 
which and we actually in the podcast we had your countryman uh, Franz Timmermans, who is the vice president of the European Commission, and he act basically said right out that yes, it's it's a mistake. This believing that the market will fix everything is a big mistake, and now we have to rewind and do better. Uh, so, but it seems like it, this is a very late coming understanding for a lot of politicians in every country. And I think Leilani's work and maybe sometimes together with the film has also opened up that debate again. And people say, okay, shit, we didn't know that it was this bad. So is that a... Yeah, I sometimes dub it like the biggest experiment whether the market will solve everything. We did that on the housing market. And I think it's pretty clear no, that the market doesn't solve everything and cannot fix everything. And um, I think, you know, the yeah, the housing situation everywhere we're seeing, that is really the place where um, we can definitely say it's, uh, it's not how it works. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know, Kim, whether you said, okay, so the parliament didn't want to hear about this, didn't want to admit this word financialization is problematic, let alone a human rights issue. So you commissioned your own report. Do you think now that the report has been released, it got a fair bit of attention? Uh, it's a solid piece of work. Do you think now that will have an impact? Will it get some of the governments, the states to engage the issue? It's still really hard um, because, of course, there's a lot of things at stake when it comes to housing and, well, making a profit uh, through housing. And um, for for many uh, governments, still one of the main focuses is we have to build more houses because that's how the market works. And the, the, apparently the demand is too high and that's why the prices go up and that's it. That's the own, like that's the simple market logic that they still have. But what I think is very interesting that there is interest. And we also see that, for example, a few weeks ago, the minister of Ireland mentioned, hey, maybe we have to look at um, the European level and how the, the capital flows through the European Union. And it's um, at, at this point in time, it's actually very interesting that we have um, the French presidency who is putting quite a lot of um, emphasis on housing in the European Union and the housing crisis, and there will be a ministerial meeting um, about housing, and um, and that's that doesn't happen very often when like ministers tend to not really meet uh, about housing, but you know the time has come that they have to and that they are, and we do have the feeling that there is really a window of opportunity where we can also push forward our report during that meeting and you know the message that we want to bring. Leilani, I, you mentioned quite early that you were so impressed and happy for the work uh, that Kim and her group is doing. What was what is specific for you? What makes you click when, when you see this? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've been working on the issue of financialization for some time now. And to have this very solid report documenting what's happening in Europe as a whole is a huge sort of testament to this phenomenon and the the problem of it. it you can't, when, once you see this report and some of the numbers, you know, how much money is being poured into housing as an investment, as an asset class in Europe, there, there's no ignoring this anymore. And the rising, rising rents. I mean, it's, it's, 
this this report helps us to understand this is a, a institutionalized problem. It 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 is structural in nature and it's not going away. And and so for that reason, I mean that's one reason I was happy for the report. Um it it certainly works uh with my own work to try to move governments because I have had the same experience Kim has had where People, I mean, Frederick, you've had the same experience. When push came out, people couldn't even say the word financialization. They didn't know what it was. Governments were not at all recognizing this. And that continues. Even now, the way they'll, they take a little piece of it that they're willing to look at, but they won't look at the whole. So this report will help us a lot in that way, I think. I certainly intend to use it. <laughs> Yay. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kim, do, do you feel this kind of that you are breaking new grounds with this, with your work? Yeah, it was actually very interesting to see the reception of the report because, you know, we, we are in the end a political party that commissions a study. Um, and um, it's, I think, what is in this, like what came out of the study. And we, we got amazing researchers who conducted the study. It's not that we did it ourselves. We get people working for universities who really have a lot of understanding of uh, the capital market union and the housing situation. Um, and, and the interesting thing was that the reception of the report, it, it was everywhere. We were front page newspapers in several countries. Um, the Guardian picked it up. You know, everywhere people were like, okay, this is the first time that we actually have in numbers how, like, how big in the end the, all the money that is spent and how many of these institutional investors, because that is indeed what it specifically focuses on, how much they are buying up. And also that um, this realization that this is just the start. You know, they're not, you know, this, it's not like, oh, now they have 1.8 trillion euros of buildings in Europe and that's where it's going to end. No, this is their first step and they're increasing. And every year they're buying up more buildings and more of our housing stock. And I think that was really something that set, you know, really an interesting discussion of also perhaps not in the, the world where you expected it, but I think it was mainly the financial news, for example, that really started talking about it like whether it is actually something we should rethink uh, and whether we should re rethink whether, you know, just speculating with housing is the best way forward. It's it's very hard to, you know, uh, it's hard to talk about it. But, you know, when I look around in the area where I live here in Malmo, uh, it's the same buildings, you know, since 100 years. But I know that the number of landlords has gone from maybe 150 down to, max 10 and then two or one owns like a big chunk of it and it's all institutional money it's all this kind of actually your landlord is sitting somewhere else and he's he's selling you and buying you every day it's that that kind of feeling it's it and it's hard to understand as a citizen hard to understand that something big has happened mm. But of course, how then, but then what do you tell your friends? Why is this problematic? Why are these institutional owners a problem for the city? I think it's actually, it, it, it's not that hard to explain that when someone owns a house with the sole purpose of making a profit, that means that the prices go up and the quality of the house doesn't go up at the same time, but actually deteriorates because the only purpose is to make a profit. I mean, I think it, it is it is quite a, a clear 
thing. And of course, you know, we, we hear all the stories like, but we need more housing, so we need more investors. But that's the thing. They're not investing in new houses for people. They're investing perhaps in big new penthouses for the wealthy to invest in. But they're not actually contributing to creating more houses for people who are at the moment struggling to find a house. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes try to explain it that the old landlord was like planting a forest. He had a long time perspective of owning a house. And of course, he would make a profit out of it. But these guys, they want to make a profit in like two or three years time period it's like it's it's very quick turnarounds of, of that money so not they, just want to they actually have to the way yeah. their deals are structured they have to get in and out within a certain time frame and it's a short time frame and that's why mm. when legislators are trying to deal with this they're like well let's let's make it so that they can't sell before 10 years or eight years or five years, because those are the locked in timeframes that they have to be in and out. So it, it cuts them off at the knees. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I have been trying to also explain to tenants is that it's not just that they're using the house or the unit or the apartment, the condo to squeeze more profits. They use it, we have to understand it like a springboard they use it to buy the next property. It becomes an, it is a financial instrument, the, the unit, and it is what leverages the next purchase, the next buy. So mm. then you really feel the hollowness of it. You know, it's like, what? Like I'm working 50 hours a week to pay my rent and they're springing off my back to mm. then purchase the next thing. You know, it's, and I do find tenants are starting to really understand the depth of this. So it, it's corrupt. It's really corrupt, you know. Yeah. And, and they also found a way to, to round the protectional legislations that we have in many countries in Europe. They found a way to make the whole system dysfunctional, which is kind of smart of them. But yeah. we also, like we dubbed it playing Monopoly. And I think that is yeah. what it is. It is exactly what they're doing. You know, they just first buy the, the cheaper uh, first houses and then they make profit with that. And then they can buy the more exactly. expensive streets. And it's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but then with the houses that people actually need to live in and not little, you know, wooden play things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, Frederick, if I might, because Kim mentioned this all, this idea too, that we should just build, build more. And then there will be so much housing that the prices will come down. And then the low income people, the people working who are struggling will be able to afford housing. And not only do we know trickle down doesn't work. That's like, I mean... You know, it's known it now. I think we put that to rest. But also, I love this idea that we should go to the people who are causing the problem to solve the problem. I find this like kind of ironic, right? The very people who are making uber amounts of money, the Blackstones, you know, all of these real estate investment trusts, let's go to them and let's get them to solve the problem. When, when do we ever do that, right? I mean, that's not uh, realistic in my opinion. Yeah, well, I think we've, uh, we've also tried to do it with the climate. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> asking, asking the big fossil fuel companies to come up with yeah. renewable energies and they didn't really... <laughs> That. Very good point. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my film, we found out that American private equity fund Blackstone has become really big and influential. I know that they're also operating in your beloved country, Netherlands, and around Europe. And so you 
you've been in contact with them, have you? They well, reacted they've been on in your... contact with me. <laughs> 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 I haven't, uh, I haven't spoken with them uh, yet. Um, but they, but they reacted on your report. Yes, they indeed reacted on the report. They sent me a, a letter um, explaining to me that it's not as simple um, as uh, as we put it in the report, and that actually that they are, you know, they're helping. They are helping the people. Um, by investing in housing, otherwise no one else would do it. So um, that's that's what they they put in the in the letter mainly. And um, yeah, we uh, I'm I'm happy to go have a conversation with them and uh, let them explain it. Um, but uh, we haven't uh, we haven't made an appointment yet. But Kim, uh, you should ask them if you can bring a friend. I uh, I was considering that. Because, you should bring. Uh, I mean, you should bring you know, Leilani. Yeah. I, I actually consider doing that, but then I don't know. We just, uh, I tell you, I'll bring my assistant and then you show up. What do you think? <laughs> Your new assistant. My new, my new rest, assistant. Rest assured, Kim, if, if you tell them that you might like to bring me, the meeting will be canceled. <laughs> that's why. That's why. I just say I have a new advisor who, uh, yeah. who's a, right. the intern. Taker. I'll bring the that's intern. Right. <laughs> But then, Perfect. then your New York Times wrote uh, an article last week about uh, Blackstone, and they are stating that they are—it's the biggest landlord in the country, and their the Blackstone rents are growing at two to three times the inflation. So their the rents are getting the inflation is getting up, but their rent is three times higher. And as a result, Blackstone had its most remarkable results ever in 2021, with its stock up 80%. So rents up three times more than the inflation, their stock up 80%. And, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Frank. No, go. No, please. I, I'm sorry. Conclude. What are, how, what, so are we, what are we taking from this? It makes me so angry. So, so as as our as one of our guests uh, in a previous podcast, Peter S. Goodman said, you know, Blackstone positions itself, and Kim, you said it right. They're saving the world. They are saving the world, and they are addressing they are addressing the housing crisis. Here you have Frederick revealing some statistics and information that show you how completely corrupt this is. It's, it is evil uh, because here's Stephen Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone, boasting that he's had the best quarter returns ever in the history of Blackstone. And most of it is off the backs of tenants who are not only struggling with inflation, but now struggling with rents that are two or three times the rate of inflation. Imagine how poorer they are as a result, and he's standing proud that his stocks are up by 80% and what a great year it's been. And people are struggling with the pandemic on top of all of this and climate change. It's like if we look at how many people have like lost their, their source of income in the past two years because of the pandemic, and then you can still like boast over that, it yeah. makes me a bit nauseous. Yes. It, 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 it pisses us off, honestly. Yeah, it's true. Um, but how do we fight this, Kim? Well, um, there's a lot of things that have to be done. And that's why I'm really happy to work on it on a European level. But actually, I'm in, my, in touch with a lot of cities uh, about this. Because, you know, we have to work on every level 
to make sure we can we can have change. Um, and you know, on every level, we have to do something. So I think what is really important for for the European level is to make sure we have more transparency. Um, we have um, this capital markets union um, where the whole idea is money has to flow. Uh, and we don't care where it goes or where it comes from, unless it's really, really um, something dodgy. Um, but, you know, uh, it has to flow and, um, and the more the better. Um, that has to change. Um, we need a transparency register, uh, specifically when it comes to, to housing and, and building stock, to really give an idea of where the money is going. Because when I talk with cities, that is what they are struggling with the most. It's not even that they notice all the time that Blackstone is buying up their property. They have no clue who actually owns their city, who owns their property, their, their buildings, their housing, their property. Um, so I think on a European level, that is really, you know, we have to get a better ID to grasp it. Um, another um, ID is to see if we can um, be included in the social taxonomy and make sure that housing is, uh, you know, housing... Uh, might be seen as something that uh, is only, you know, is something that um, if you are an investor is a social thing to do. I think we have to be really, really strict on making sure that that's only a thing if you actually provide affordable housing and not just try to um, get more money of, of it. But on a local level, um, and this is very interesting what's happening uh, in the Netherlands now, because the laws have changed, we can now finally... Um, you know, make it um, the rule that if people buy a house in a city, they have to start living there themselves. That's the new rule. I don't know if, what the English term for it uh, is. I'm sorry. Uh, Self-bewoningsplicht. Beautiful word in Dutch. One of my favorite Self, words in the last self month. Self-bewoningsplicht. Yeah, self-bewoningsplicht. Yeah. Self so you have the duty yeah. to live somewhere yourself. Um, yeah. And I think that is a very important thing because it gives, um, on the one hand, you know, these investors just can't buy them. Uh, but can buy these houses and it gives actually the people who want to buy a house and want to live there more opportunities on the housing market. Cool. Leilani, you have to, this is something for you to use now in panels. It's in my directives. Selbstbewohnungsplicht. Yes. S can so you say it? I can't say it. I'm not even going to try. Not not with his head cold. No. But I will say this. Um, there's a couple of things that... Um, You're too serious. Come I'm on. I'm too serious. Very serious. Back to financialization. Um, the thing that um, I noticed in the report um, that you did that relates to sort of how do we tackle this? And it's why I... Sometimes I wonder, you know what am I doing at the international level? Is there a role? Is there something that needs to happen at the global level? And after reading your report, I thought, ah, yes, there it is. Because so much of the money that's flowing into Europe and buying up Europe is from pension funds in the United States, pension funds in, in South Korea, uh, et cetera. So it, and of course, Blackstone's capital that it brings in is all foreign capital. So I think I, I love the idea of more transparency at EU level, 100%. And I actually agreed with all of the recommendations in your report. They're excellent. Um, and then if what I'm going to try to do is zoom out and say, okay, and what would this look like at global scale? How can we stop this flow of money from pension funds in the US into Europe, et cetera, et cetera? So it's a big, it is obviously a big task. Uh, we can do it though. 
Yeah, I don't think we're going to solve it in one podcast, but um, <laughs> I, I do no? know that there's a lot of amazing people that, uh, that are fighting for it amongst yes. you. So um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What would it mean if housing were a fundamental right? you write in your report i mean it's uh it's an uh, interesting i mean this is what we come from i know what countries. it would mean <laughs> yeah so it's it is uh i mean this is what we had in europe before so it's it is in some way a radical change and i think in my own country people haven't even understood that it has changed yeah the people who has noted this are the people who are the poorest in this country mainly immigrants and who are like under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress because of this, where all the affordable apartments are, are going away mm. day by day, day by day. Yeah, yeah we and just changed the whole world upside down right now. It's, mm. it's actually almost, it's almost um, incomprehensible to think what it would actually mean because it would actually mean that um, we are going to put people first um, we're going to put people above money. And in a capitalist world, that is something I think very almost difficult to imagine, although it is what how it should be, obviously, you know, and, and, and it's, I think, you know, when you're asking about, you know, a neoliberal Europe and the European market, which is all based on making sure that there's, you know, enough trade happening between the countries. That's why I'm there. I want to put people above the market and i want to make sure that people are at the core again of um, of european policies and that's why i think when it comes to housing as a fundamental right you know people have to come first we have to think how we can actually take care of people rather than of um, the people who want to make money and, exactly and Kim, tell me tell me about your own journey i mean you're 33 i don't not 32 say 32 sorry oh my god now i really I messed up. But uh, how how did you start? I mean, you're a green politician, so I guess the climate and the, the planet is is being high up on your. How did you, when did you get polit politicized in your life? I was very um, young. Yeah, well, um, I think I, I really got politicized in high school. Um, I had some amazing teachers, who, and especially my history teacher, um, who also taught us about democracy and about current politics and he um, started many of the classes with um, boys and girls I really don't want to influence you but I read this thing in the newspaper today and started a rant about how the world was <laughs> unjust um, so that was that was always uh, something that you know they, and, and they really um, we had a lot of debate classes and they really started to, to, to already make you think a lot. Like I think that we already got in high school what many people get only at university when you really, when they really push you to think for yourself and get your own ideas. So I think I've been very lucky also looking at many of my classmates who all ended up in politics. Many of them. It's super interesting. It's just a tiny high school in, in the countryside of the Netherlands. There were two schools, um, in, in that, uh, in, in my hometown, uh, Middelburg. And I mean, I, I went to the non-Christian one. There was a Christian one and this one. And I think we've just been very lucky with the teachers we encountered there. Um, and there I, um, uh, at some point there was a protest in the Netherlands. Um, there were strikes, student strikes. Um, not for the climate. Um, I'm a bit older <laughs> than uh, than that. Um, but they were for better for for better school rules. And um, there was a protest in front of my school. So the kids from the other school came to my school, 
Um, and they were standing on the streets and the police decided to just come in and hit the students. Um, and that was really a moment where I was like, okay, so if you, as a 14 year old, stand up against the system, first, apparently you get beaten up. What is this? Wow. wow. Um, and for me, that has been such a driver always that, you know, if you, if you want to be heard as a young person, you have to stand up for your rights and you have to push even harder to make your voice be heard. And I think that is, uh, and then, yeah, I became more of an activist also in the climate movement, in the feminist movement. And I think that is something that still drives me. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the youngest members of the European Parliament now, although I'm already 32, but in that world, I'm very young. And, um, and, and it's still something that really drives me that I try to stand up for, for people that, that don't have that voice. And I feel it's, it's a privilege that, uh, that I am there to, uh, to be able to try to represent the people that don't have a voice. And I try to go out as much as possible and talk with the people that I do this work for. Mm. Cool. Really, I, it's, I liked it. I, I've just been back from Chile, uh, where actually a movement of high school students uh, changed the country. And they, I mean, now the president comes from that, uh, that movement as he's only 35. Um, and, and it's also young women in the lead in, in many, many, many places. So it's, you're a part of a, of a global movement, I would say. And that's really inspirational, putting the planet and human rights first. Um, I think that's something Leilani likes, isn't I it? I do. I like it a lot. <laughs> and I, I actually think it takes a tr tremendous amount of courage to, one, believe in something, and two, to put yourself out there as a, a change maker, a possible change maker, to run for political office. It, it's all very courageous. And then once you succeed to actually use your power and privilege and your voice to help the planet and to help people, it's just, I find it hugely inspiring. And, and again, I say tremendously courageous. It's not an easy world. It's not an easy world to push up against, you know, the dominant forces and the dominant structures. And, and they can come collapsing around you. Frederick has had the experience of a, of a huge corporation coming after him for one of his very courageous pieces of work. It's, it can be a scary world. So I, both of you are inspirational to me, actually. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, you're a great inspiration to us as well, Elani. So, uh, I mean, you know, I, I um, was talking with some activists in Rotterdam because in Rotterdam we have quite some issues. Yes. And, um, and then I, I only mentioned that I had spoken with you, Leilani. And wow, they almost dropped to the floor <laughs> when they heard that. So. That's fun. That's fun. Yes. yes, lots going on in Rotterdam cool. for sure. And, and Kim, it's, it's, it's fun to have you on our podcast. And um, I wish you all the best with your work. And, and uh, I think we are a growing number of people who are, who are seeing and understanding a little bit more on, on what's going on. And, and I think the rest will follow very soon because this is not sustainable. So even more moder moderate politicians are starting to see uh, this is actually a problem. Yeah. Even if they, the, the rich people will buy lobbyists and they will create talking points for them over and over again, we now know how to go against it. Mm, yeah, thanks so much for coming, Kim. And um, I'm just going to mm. plug your report. Everyone should go out and read. My home is an asset class uh, and figure out whether your home is 
an asset class. And even if your home isn't an asset class, your home will be affected by those that are around it <laughs> that are asset classes. Yeah. Um, and we will put the link uh, of your report on the, the on the little blurb uh, around the podcast that you is on wherever you listen to the podcast. And please tell your friends to listen to the podcast. This one is re really cool. Listen also to the ones we did with Peter S. Goodman from New York Times. It's very much up your alley. Yeah. Also came uh, Peter S. Goodman's work. It's a, a very, very angry New York Times global economic uh, correspondent talking about exactly what yeah. you're talking about. Um, so there's a lot to learn. And so we are not alone. I think that's a very good feeling to, to close this with. So thank you and see you soon. Keep going, Kim. Keep going. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And also thank you for all the work you're doing to put this important topic so high on the agenda. It's, it's really invaluable to have people like you, actually, that I can refer to in my work then again. So um, thank you as well. Thank you. Goodbye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks or follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week.